I'm Henry Standage, and you're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Petroleum, or crude oil, powers our daily lives. A dependency as great as ours, though, for a non-renewable product brings up lots of challenging questions. Especially in Canada, where the oil sector has experienced a severe decline in the mid to late 2010s. Luckily, Burns Cheadle is familiar with both sides of the game. After working in the oil and gas industry for 23 years, he now resides as the chair of petroleum geology at Western University. He was willing to bring his unique perspective and insight on Canada's oil climate to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Here's our full conversation now. Let's talk about the responsible development of oil and gas. What questions do you specifically look at? Sure. Well, I mean, responsible development is a, uh, it's a term that a lot of people aren't familiar with. I think a lot of us hear about sustainable development. Um, but sustainability, when it comes to things like production of oil and gas, uh, is a very difficult goal. And that's for a very simple reason that we're consuming the product uh, at a rate that far exceeds the rate at which it's produced in nature. So uh, ultimately, we will reach an end to the supply uh, of oil and gas. So in the meantime, uh, what responsible development focuses on is trying to maintain uh, as best as possible some sort of equilibrium between uh, the actual operation of exploring for and producing the product um, versus, you know, the, the environmental impacts, the uh, social impacts, and uh, certainly health and safety concerns as well. So uh, when I look at responsible development, I look at it through the lens of a geologist. Um, and we are, we're an odd breed. Um, geologists work with different time scales and we're, we're often very blase about things that operate over millions of years. Um, we work on different spatial scales than most people. So um, you know, for me, responsible development often involves trying to uh, think of providing the best possible description of what exists in the subsurface, often at depths that run into several kilometers so that when the time comes to actually go out and explore for, or drill for, or produce the product, um, that that can be done in a very targeted fashion. You mentioned your role as a geologist there. And so where, where do geologists fit in when looking at oil and gas drilling? So, uh, and that's a fair question because I think a, a lot of people have kind of funny ideas about how the oil and gas business works. So if, if we step back and look at it very broadly, um, the, the route that, that begins at your gas station and works back to my role as a geologist is uh, divided into three major uh, sectors. Uh, one that's called the upstream sector and that's the part of oil and gas that's involved in actually going out and, and drilling wells into the ground and producing the product. Um, once that product, the, the oil, crude oil or natural gas has been produced uh, out of a well bore, um, or in the case of an oil sands mine out of a mine, um, then it goes into what is known as the midstream sector. And the midstream sector 
Um, you can think of that as the pipelines. That's, that's really the facilities and pipelines that move the product from the well to a refinery. And the refinery and ultimately the gas station where you fill that car is known as the downstream sector. So that, that's the place where they take this raw product and manufacture it into other products, one of which is, is gasoline. So as a geologist, uh, geologists focus on the upstream sector almost exclusively. Um, and so the role of the geologist is the very first stage of that whole process uh, in which they um, try to identify places where if a well is drilled, it's likely to hit something. Um, and that's something being a pool of oil. Um, so here's a little thought experiment. I want to describe what exploration, what the exploration challenge uh, really is like. Because we're talking about um, drilling a hole into the ground uh, to a depth, you know, often three or four kilometers down, where you really have no idea what's down there, you're guessing. So it's kind of akin to walking into a grocery store. So let's say you walk into a grocery store and, and you, uh, you walk up to the produce stand and you reach out and you grab an apple. The, the next trick then is based on what you see in your hand, that apple, you're being asked to predict what's happening in the, in the uh, cereal roll four rows over. And your only knowledge really is A, that you're in a grocery store and if you're lucky, you know it's a, a Sobeys and you kind of know how Sobeys are laid out. So you can make a guess at maybe where the cereal aisle is and what, what's stocked in it. That is exactly the problem that exploration geologists face because they're working with very scant information about what rocks and what fluids exist in the subsurface. So that information comes from the drilling of previous wells. So uh, a routine job for a petroleum uh, geologist uh, is they'll go into the office and they'll look at, at information that came from other wells. Uh, and those wells are separated by uh, certainly kilometers, if not several kilometers. So they're, they're very widely spaced. And they're sampling uh, a, a volume of rock that's, that's maybe about a meter around that well bore. So it's a very, very small fraction of the sample. So they look at the evidence from several wells and based on their knowledge of the way the world works today in terms of the way rocks are deposited, they begin to build up a mental model. So they, they can map out the probable distribution of different types of rocks, um, the properties of the rocks, and principally the, the oil geologists are, are trying to figure out how much void space is in those rocks and, and whether or not um, hydrocarbons in the form of crude oil or natural gas fills that void space. So, you know, when people ask me, is this the short answer to your question? When, when people ask me, what do, what do you do as, as a geologist? My smart aleck answer is I reconstruct lost worlds because that's really what we're doing. We're taking very tiny volumes of forensic evidence and piecing together a picture of what the world looked like 100 million, 200, 400 million years ago. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a thrilling proposition in its own right, uh, but as you might imagine, it's 
fraught with all sorts of uncertainty and risk. Yeah, and okay, so let's talk about that uncertainty and risk. <laughs> so in Canada, we've had more than 100,000 people lose their jobs in the last three years in this industry. So can you just take me through how we got here? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, Canada was subject to global forces. Uh, so in 2014, um, the uh, OPEC countries were very concerned that they were losing market share. Sorry, who's OPEC? So OPEC are the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Com uh, Countries, uh, dominantly led by Saudi Arabia and the, and the Gulf states, yeah. but also include um, uh, other countries that are, are major petroleum exporters. Um, so they, they, OPEC organization as a group um, gather on a regular basis. Uh, generally, these are people who are the oil ministers or economic ministers of the various countries, uh, and they look at the, at the market. So in that case in uh, 2014, uh, they looked at, at global um, prices and, and production capacity of crude oil in the world, uh, and they realized that they were beginning to lose uh, market share to the United States. And you know, bear in mind, when people think about oil, they tend to think about Saudi Arabia. The United States is actually the largest oil producer on the planet. So uh, they had seen about a 2% market share drop globally uh, and decided they needed to do something about it. So what they did is they glutted the market. They opened the taps on their production and glutted the market with crude oil. And crude oil, like every other product, it, it, the price is, is determined by uh, supply and demand. The increased supply, when demand is constant, the price drops. And that's what happened in, uh, in the latter part of 2014. The price, which had previously been you know, in the range of in excess of $100, in fact, peaked at $140 per barrel of oil, um, dropped pretty precipitously and, and ultimately reached lows uh, in, in the high 20s. $20 per barrel. So the impact for Canadian oil and gas producers is that it costs them a lot more than $20 or $30 a barrel to produce oil. If you look at uh, even today in, uh, in Alberta, for example, um, the price that most producers require uh, in order to recover the cost that it takes to drill a well and to operate that well and to pay royalties and taxes. And have a full uh, staff. And, well, yeah, that's, that's part of that cost, is, is the uh, general and administrative cost. Uh, generally ranges anywhere from about 45 to, well, it can actually go up to values of $120 a barrel. So uh, for those um, Canadian producers, they had to look at this new price reality and, and realize that most of the wells uh, that they were pumping oil out of, um, they would be producing at a loss under that price. In other words, they would have uh, a supply cost, which is this, this cost recovery number. Um, they'd have a supply cost that might be uh, in the range of $50, but they're only getting $25 for the product. We can't run a business that way. So their response is, they shut in wells and they stop exploring. You stop exploring, you don't need geologists, you don't need geophysicists, you don't need a lot of your engineers, you don't need a lot of your support staff. And then there's a trickle-out effect because the oil and gas industry in Canada 
um, has a lot of direct employees, like the people I just mentioned, including people who drill wells and so forth. But then there are all those indirect jobs, you know, the, the people in the restaurants who feed meals to the riggers who are, who are drilling wells, uh, running motels, uh, selling vehicles, and so on and so forth. So uh, immediately uh, in Western Canada, there was, there was a huge surplus of manpower that was no longer needed. And that's what resulted in this uh, 100,000 number that you quote. So of that 100,000, about half of those, about 50,000, uh, were direct jobs. People are directly employed by the industry, and the other half were those who were indirectly uh, employed. And uh, it's had a, a crippling effect uh, on Alberta, and you, can, you, you could tangibly notice the difference when you went to a city like Calgary and you simply saw fewer people in restaurants and fewer people in malls and fewer cars on the road um, because out there, uh, you know, oil and gas is a major chunk of the labor force. Um, so, you know, ultimately, uh, the Canadian producers, they were subject to this global force, this global uh, tossing between OPEC and the United States over who had how much market share. Well, ultimately, o OPEC recovered about a percent and a half of market right. share in that exercise, um, and they probably cost them about a trillion and a half dollars to do that uh, in terms of producing at a loss. Um, but for countries like Canada, where generally we have higher supply costs and we, we get a lower price for our product because it has to be transported to the United States to sell generally, um, that impact was magnified. And the domino effect of that is the cheaper solution is usually the less environmentally friendlier solution. And so when you're operating at a loss, it might put some progressive plans of actions on standby a little bit. No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, Canada, not in Canada, because Canada is a very highly regulated uh, regime that um, Regardless of price, you've got uh, provincial regulators like the Alberta Energy Regulator that still enforce uh, very stringent regulations around environmental and, and safety compliance. Um, so that's generally not where producers would cut costs. They simply cut costs by uh, turning the valve off, turning off wells that are not economic to produce and laying off people who they can't gainfully employ. But um, by and large, the, you don't save anything by cutting back on uh, health and safety and environment uh, because those are things that, you know, uh, the, the fines uh, and the legal ramifications are, are punitive and, and virtually every producer knows that. You know, I think the scenario you described might have been true if you go back 20 or 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, but it's generally not true of the Canadian uh, oil patch. I'm not trying to be an apologist for that business. That's just the reality of the way they have to work. It's a very highly regulated business. Uh, so the crash seemed to hit its tipping point in 2014 in Alberta. So it's been four and a half years since. How are we going about a recovery and how is it looking? It's looking slow. So there, there has been some recovery. Um, so the immediate impact of that crash is, is production of conventional oil, which is, is the light, sort of the low density oil that's easy to produce. So I'm not talking about oil sands mines here. 
Um, that dropped almost immediately by about 400,000 barrels a day. And uh, since about uh, the latter part of 2016 and through 2017, that number has been creeping back up a bit, but not to the levels that, that it had prior uh, to the 2014 crash. So in terms of production, uh, the numbers are showing a, a slow recovery um, and the projections are that it will eventually flatten off at, at a new stable production level that will be lower than it was previously. So the, the indications seem to be that it, it's, it's kind of a partial recovery in a sense that the industry will rebuild itself, but it will be less than what it was before. Now, the other half of that, of course, is you know, what's the human impact? How, how's that expressed in employment? Um, and you know, the, the sense, again, is very hard to track down specific numbers. Um, I probably could three years after the event. Uh, but this, the sense uh, that I get from talking to people in Calgary is that there isn't a lot of new hiring going on, that, that there are some people getting back to work. Uh, but not to the levels that existed previously. And uh, in many cases, uh, the, the people who were the first to leave the business uh, were the people who had all the experience. They were, they were the expensive employees um, who were probably within about 10 years of retirement. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, for those people, it's very hard to go back. So I would say the industry has had a, a permanent loss of that kind of experience. And for a lot of the young people um, who were laid off, uh, they simply looked at that as an opportunity to change careers. So that many of those have permanently left that business and they've taken those skills and applied them in other areas. So, you know, for example, uh, a geophysicist who uh, in the oil and gas business is an individual who largely designs and interprets seismic surveys. Um, after being laid off, can transfer those skills into uh, you know any number of uh, uh, industries that involve uh, coding, for example. So they might move into the uh, uh, tech industry around game design or things of that nature. Uh, so I think there's been a, a permanent loss of uh, of talent on the industry, and it's going to take the industry a long time to reestablish that. Um, and that varies. You know, I think that varies depending on. Um, exactly which skills you're talking about. So the average oil and gas business, uh, think of the different um, the different occupations that are involved in there. And you, yes, you've got geologists and geophysicists, you've got a variety of different types of engineers, you've got uh, a lot of people who worry about administering the data, you've got a lot of accountants and lawyers. So it's a, it's a very diverse pool of people. Um, and some of those can make the transition pretty easily and others can't. Um, so I, I think that the oil and gas industry uh, is going to face a long, slow grind toward a new uh, sort of equilibrium point that will be less than what it was. Um, and it remains to be seen how that plays out for the province of Alberta because the statistics for Alberta in terms of, of uh, employment actually look pretty good in terms of economic growth of the province. Um, I believe it was leading the country last year. So uh, you know, I think we are seeing stimulation in parts of the economy, uh, 
but not necessarily in the uh, halls of head offices of oil and gas companies. Mm. Yeah, Canada might surprise people. It's actually the fourth largest producer of oil in the world. Yet Eastern Canada continues to import from abroad. There's some, a disconnect there between West and East. What am I missing here? Yeah, you're right, it is a disconnect. It, it's literally a disconnect. It's a disconnect of pipeline infrastructure. So the, the problem is fundamentally this. The vast majority of... Uh, crude oil, I mean, let's just keep the, the conversation on crude oil for the moment. The vast majority of, of crude oil produced in Canada comes out of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And uh, as it stands today, that crude oil goes into pipelines that largely point south. There are some pipelines that bring that product uh, into areas like Sarnia, which is the major petrochemical center uh, in Ontario. Uh, but but there really aren't pipeline connections to take that crude oil further east through Quebec and, and ultimately um, to a to seaboard in um, St. John, uh, New Brunswick, where there's a large refinery operated by Irving Oil. So um, the people in eastern Canada don't really have direct access to resources that are produced in Canada, which is a mind-boggling concept uh, and really their, their only option uh, to get a, uh, a supply of refined gasoline is for crude oil to be brought in by tankers from places like uh, Saudi Arabia and, and other Gulf states and Venezuela and these tankers arrive in St. John, New Brunswick so they steam their way up the um, uh, Bay of Fundy uh, into St. John and they end up at the Irving oil refinery where that, that crude oil is transformed into gasoline and diesel and jet fuel and all the other products and then is fed out through local distribution largely trucked around to uh, gas stations in eastern Canada. So uh, you know, th this is why part of why pipelines have become a, a big hot topic in yeah. Canadian conversation that uh, there is this mysterious element of why are we importing foreign oil uh, and often from jurisdictions that have a lot less stringent uh, regulations than we do in Canada uh, when we're, we have such a rich endowment of resources in our own country. And, and the problem is building pipelines is a contentious bit of business. And you know, I think you can understand why. It's, it's a big industrial operation that mobilizes thousands of people and disturbs a lot of ground in order to you know, dig a deep trench. And those deep trenches sometimes have to go across uh, First Nations or uh, agricultural land or close to communities that make them uncomfortable. So, you know, I think a lot of people feel that they have a voice in the decision uh, to build those pipelines and then it becomes a very long process. So uh, a good example of that was the um, Energy East uh, project that proposed to uh, extend uh, existing uh, oil pipelines that go into Ontario, but then extend them through Quebec and then ultimately connect them uh, to St. John uh, with the intent that ultimately, rather than importing oil through St. John, we could be exporting oil through St. John. Um, and 
the, uh, the environmental reviews, the public hearings, the uh, uh, consultation processes associated with that project went on and were revised repeatedly until the proponent of the project simply said, forget it, we, we just we can't do business this way, we don't see an end uh, to this process, and they withdrew their application. Uh, and that's you know, often being the case of pipeline projects and liquefied natural gas projects and large energy infrastructure projects in Canada, uh, which leaves us in a very uncomfortable position that for Canada, um, we produce a lot more oil and gas than we consume as a nation. So we're left with a lot of product to export. Um, and by a lot of product, you know, when it comes to something like uh, natural gas, for example, we, we export uh, about five and a half billion cubic feet a day of natural gas, but we only have one customer, and that customer is the United States. Mm. So naturally, <laughs> we don't get world price for that product. They know, you know they, our customers in the States um, know that they are the only customers, so they can demand a lower price or command a lower price uh, for that product. So when today um, you know, crude oil might be, be selling in the range of 70 to $72 a barrel, uh, West Canada Select, which is the, the blend of types of oil that come out of Western Canada, is giving you a price of about $53. And that's sort of typical, that there is a, over the long haul, about a 15 to $20 per barrel discount applied to Canadian oil. So, you know, as the world oil prices recover, as they have, um, that's great news for people in OPEC, and it's great news for producers in the United States who don't have to sell at a discount. For Canadian operators, it makes it a lot more difficult. You know, where 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 does the future lie for Canadian oil and gas in, in a world where it's you know a world that is addicted to crude oil is still going to end up using the product for a good while into the future until um, other sources of energy are, are found that, that can replace oil. Right now, that's very hard to do. So, can Canada compete in that world? Can it compete when we have um, problems getting their product out to the world, uh, when generally we're getting a lower price for the product, uh, when our regulations are arguably more stringent than virtually every other jurisdiction, uh, and where our labor and operating costs tend to be pretty high? And I would say yes, we can. And I think the way we can is by doing what Canadians have often done, which is applying innovative thinking. I think we can make Canadian oil and gas an attractive for investment, which it currently is not, <laughs> but we can do that by proving that we can do it smarter. So what does that mean? And this is kind of where it comes back to the research angle. So, you know, my research tends to focus on uh, you know, trying to build these, these better models of what exists in the subsurface so that when wells are drilled, um, generally they will be more successful wells. You know, that, that helps to improve the efficiency. Uh, but I think there's a lot of other aspects of science that can be brought to bear. And uh, I think a good example is um, 
clever uh, uh, application of data analytics that you know for operators who who are trying to predict um, the outcome of the drilling of a well. In other words, they're trying to predict in the future how that well is going to produce. That's mainly a game of statistics. So. You know, if we can harness our, our intellectual capacity around data analytics, uh, we can begin to, to tease out of that data the factors that differentiate good wells from bad wells and be able to apply that so that overall um, the efficiency of the exploration drilling piece becomes much higher. Um, and I think we also have uh, really interesting conversations to have in the future uh, perhaps about what we are doing with these products. I mean, right now we produce oil and gas, but we do the, the absolutely the most basic thing to that product. We basically set a match to it and light it on fire and hope to get warm. Um, you know, is that really the best we can do with that product, or are there opportunities to create novel new materials? Uh, are there opportunities perhaps to capture some of that carbon dioxide that's produced uh, out of the combustion of these products and then use that to manufacture value-added products. So I think we can be smarter about what we do.